Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. dedicated to Henry Farmer. In the year of the primal Well, 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 my friends, welcome to Agitators Anonymous. I am Alan Averill, and this one will be part two of the tour diary. As you can probably hear, my voice is not completely recovered yet. So I will continue with this Barry White-esque husky, and let's be clear, sexy black metal rasp. And I have no idea if this will affect my listenership. Um, As you know, you can see on your, um, you can examine the list of places where people listen to the podcast. And there are some more, I shall call them obscure places on my list. Well, I mean, obscure to me anyway, sitting in rainy old Dublin, Ireland. But let's call it my reach, even though I hate that word. But places like Bolivia, Honduras, the Maldives, Senegal, where now and again I get a DM saying, more or less, we have no idea what you're talking about, but we like your voice. I'm not sure what to do with that information. It's like when you meet Americans and they go, oh, I love the Dublin accent. And you go, oh, yeah, really? Do you love this accent? Yeah, this that's fucking gorgeous, man. Uh, savage. Really? You like that accent? Or they like the Cork accent, which is a bit like this, etc. Yes, I'm back to doing accents. It must be springtime. Anyway. Both of those accents are abominations. Let's be clear, all things considered, but whatever floats your linguistic boat. So if you prefer my uh, husky post-tour voice, well then, good for you. And if you don't have any clue what I'm saying and you're sitting there in your own language going, I don't like the way he sounds now. Well, apologies for that. So this has to be part two of the tour diary. Now, you may notice that my promise of two podcasts a week is a little bit all over the place. This was kind of knocked out of kilter by the tour. Um, about preparing two podcasts a week, etc., etc. So you will have to forgive me that it remains a little bit haphazard. It is in my plans to do, 
But, of course, you know, the best laid plans, things get in the way and all that kind of thing. As tomorrow morning, Dread Sovereign is off to Karmoygeden Festival in Haugesund in the west of Norway. So, of course, the stress and preparation of that and realizing like, oh, God damn it. I haven't played the bass in months. How do I play those songs again? Can I sing? Etc. Etc. What manner of tight pants am I going to wear? Are they going to be fitting to my age? Etc. Etc. Who wants to be mutton dressed as lamb? All those kind of complicated questions are what you have to address. Anyway, yes, we promise normal, normal service will be resumed as soon as possible. You can follow me on Instagram, nemtiango underscore primordial or primordial underscore official. Um, if, as I said before, you run a uranium or coltan mining plant and want to get in touch to sponsor the show, uh, no problem. You have some heavily caffeinated drink that you think the youth of today needs. Well, goddammit, I'm behind you. Let's get on it and sponsor the show. Or you're running a record label and you think, well, this man has a captive audience of whatever I have. That's up to you to find out when you DM me. Um, and we can do something to create some sponsorship and shine a, shine a rather um, gloomy light on whatever it is that you're selling, etc., etc. Get in touch with me. Agitators Anonymous is open for business, open for agitation. So, part two of the tour diary. I mean, <clears throat> like I said, in the last episode, I only managed to get to the end of day one. Day one, so... I'm going to drag the arse of this out of this, as they say, for as long as possible. However, um, and you know, don't worry, I haven't forgotten the Great Reset. I haven't forgotten the war in Ukraine. Although, it must be said, that sadly dropped off the media radar, right? I mean, we all saw that coming when the invasion happened. The media news cycle has about three or four weeks on top of something, and then it moves on. And... Um, it's a terrible thing, but the media cycle appears to have just done exactly that. And three months in, you do worry terribly that uh, Ukraine will become the new Afghanistan or something like this. However, what can I say? I haven't forgotten all of those things. Elon Musk takes over Twitter. Conservatism is the new punk rock, right? <laughs> and of course, certain people have a meltdown over his claim to want more free speech. How strange and indeed Shameful that so many people view the idea of more free speech now as a threat to society. How has this become a, um, a trope of the right? How is it that people on what I believe to be no real division anymore, because I think those old um, concerns of old left and old right don't really make sense in the modern um, internet landscape and the modern terrain anymore, but the idea that many people view his... Um, his claim to wanting to make Twitter more about free speech as a threat. How can that be a threat? Um, indeed, it is clear. It is clearly what civilization and democracy is built upon. And I may add, the people losing their shit over Musk buying Twitter, I didn't hear you speaking out about the people who owned it previously. Vanguard, investment companies, BlackRock, who appear to own most of the modern world and are creating this financial behemoth, which be clear in the next couple of years is going to prove to be something very dark for humanity in my opinion or Saudi Arabian oil tycoons munitions companies I imagine um, I just threw that in arbitrarily but many morally dubious multinationals um, 
Was anyone complaining about that previously? No, they weren't. But a billionaire um, buying shares in Twitter has everyone going crazy. And weren't they the same people who told all the people on the other side to go and build their own platform when it was on their side? It, of course, proves that um, morals in this circumstance mean absolutely nothing. It's clear that these these moral stances are only ones people are willing to stand behind when it benefits their side. Now, I don't wish to be claimed for any side in this debate. Um, but, you know, when someone comes along and says, hey, um, I'm going to clean up this platform and make it more about free speech, how can that be a bad thing? Um, I'm going to get rid of the bots. That's going to be a good thing, right? I mean, look, when someone can be banned off Twitter for saying a man is not a woman, but ISIS still have active accounts on Twitter, let's be clear, something is not correct there. Anyway, conservatism is the new punk rock, my friends. It has been for a long time. Boom. You can have that as the title for your next compilation album. Um, when you're collecting money to help those poor multinationals who've been bought out by a billionaire. Is there anything strange about that right now? I mean, aren't we entering a form of new feudalism where billionaires are more powerful than states? BlackRock's um, GDP, let's call it that, um, is greater or almost the equivalent of the entire United States. Who are BlackRock, you hear? Isn't BlackRock a kind of cool um, name for you know, a sort of a sub subdivision of heavy metal. It kind of is black rock, right? Yeah, reminds me of Sentence to Mock or something like this. Anyway, anyway, my point is, you're offended? That's okay. Take a moment to consider what free speech means as your options are running out. Anyway, yeah, this one was about music, right? Also, why is my algorithm filled with Johnny Depp's whatever it is? Really? Really? Anyway. It just astounds me that how many people seem to be um, seem to object to the idea that um, more free speech is a bad thing. How can that be true? It is um, a long and shameful path towards um, authoritarianism, and many people seem to want that path paved and ready to use as soon as possible. And believe me, it's coming. So that out of the way, I mean, really. This show is sponsored by www.metalblade.com. If you're in North America, use the promo code ALAN for 10% off your order. So where are we? Where are we with the Tour Diary? Well, now, let's be clear. Um, one thing that no one really understands or seems to understand is uh, Brexit. Um, let's get Brexit done. Let's get breakfast done, etc., etc. Um, it's day two, day three, maybe. You know, we're headed towards the UK. And there is passport control from the UK or say into the UK from France or is there not no one seems to know it seems to depend on if there's anyone working or not it seems to depend on the time of day it's very strange just like every or maybe I just wasn't paying that close attention but just like everywhere in the world right now um, it just seems that hey it's hard to get staff hard to get staff these days you might have seen that P&O ferries um, who run the ferries between um, France and England, um, England and Ireland, sacked thousands of employees. And these huge ferry ports and terminals are kind of like ghost towns now. Is anyone working? We have our passports checked leaving France by the French, if I'm not mistaken. But on the other side into the UK, no one. We just walk through. But the queue for the English breakfast is hundreds and hundreds strong. But there is no one working on the boat. 
um, enough carbs that morning to bring us all a little closer to a heart attack. But again, like I've mentioned before, and it sounds rather mundane and rather boring, there just seems to be no one working anywhere. And the confusion over what papers are required to leave and enter the UK and France, it seems um, like no one really knows what's happening. They're sort of making things up on the fly, as I said. Some people ask for your passport, and then the next people don't. And the next people don't seem to have any interest, and you just drive straight through. And then the next little space you get to in the ferry terminal, they take you off the bus, they want you to bring bits of paper into a building, and it all seems a bit Eastern European. So when you um, when you enter the UK, and theoretically, you need a list of all the equipment that you have, all the amps, all the guitars. It's called a carnate. A carnet, a.k.a. carnet, ATA, I'm sorry. A list of everything for the authorities, which now costs over a thousand euro to make, um, which cost little or nothing three or four years ago, um, which I find, and I'm going to talk a little bit about these things during the tour diary, and it, I don't want it to sound like just an airing of grievances, but repeatedly over the coming weeks is that there are more and more efforts to price gouge. And I use that word because I quite like the word gouge, and you can use it for your thrash band if you wish, but... There is an, um, there's an element of consistently trying to charge for things that several years ago were just done for free, pre-pandemic. So we're standing waiting in um, the Dover Ferry Terminal to go and play two shows in the UK. And there's a fire alarm in the building, which will become a, um, a theme over the coming two weeks. Um, and so processing the papers, we all stand around in Dover for three to four extra hours in the sun. Um, and no one really knows what's going on. Now the time is pretty, we're cutting it pretty short getting to London. But I don't know. Hey, maybe we played London too much over the recent while. We played an important show, which was right at the end of the pandemic in London, which I think was very important for the band because it was the first show after almost two years of nothing. And it pulled the threads back together. And so it was a very important show, that one we did with Fan and Hell Ripper amongst other bands. But there are grumblings, there are complainings. Maybe we played London too much. I don't know. The gig is cool. Seems like a good crowd to me. But this is an example of the kind of thing that happens now um, more and more and more. Come on, Avril. Get your shit together and start speaking properly. Um, yeah, this is the kind of thing that happens more and more. The venue give us 30 minutes after the show to leave the backstage or face a £1,500 sterling fine. And the same for all the merch in the lobby. Our merch guy has to pack everything up, all the boxes out, everything half an hour after the show. And of course, you know, people are queuing up trying to buy things after the show and they want to fine us, the band, for being 100 seconds over our stage time, notwithstanding wanting breaks for the crew during the day, even though we arrive at 4 p.m. Um, they want to charge me £70 for using a wireless mic because mine won't charge up. All of these things, they want you out of the venue as quickly as possible. And it seems clear, invent things with which to try and attempt to find the artist for. So, you know, this leaves me um, little, you know, one or two notches short of incandescent with rage. And it may be incorrect, but I just lump all of this in together with a sense of injustice that you cannot help but feeling as an artist. You know, I lump it in with being screwed by Spotify it's just all part of the same conversation. The attitude of the venue um, is all part of this, in my opinion, sort of, I'm not going to use the word war because that would be a bit hyperbolic, but 
it's just this constant idea that shit runs downhill and it collects in a pool where artists happen to be standing and there's nowhere further for it to run. So you simply have to just stand in it. And so I unfairly or fairly lump it all in together. And the idea that you try and fine an artist for going 100 seconds over your stage time. Places like this don't exist without artists. The crew's jobs don't exist. So why try and constantly squeeze them and fine them? Of course, we aren't supposed to talk about things like this. And this is one of the weird things about the music industry. It's an, it's an almost kind of mafioso code of silence, a kind of unwritten law uh, that I won't tell you what some bands are being paid, for example, for a festival, the headliners. Um, or that you'd be surprised to learn that some of them are being paid six figures plus, you know, um, and how their exorbitant fees mean once you take into account rising energy and travel costs for the lower 95% of the bill, they come home with less and less and less and less, and they hit everyone's bottom line, whatever that may be. It's very strange. I suppose it's some sort of hangover from the 1950s and the 1960s when the early um, record labels saw how much money could be made from moving into, I suppose, chess records or Motown or those early soul and blues deals which saw musicians playing on albums that sold millions and they earned literally nothing who you will probably find playing for a hundred dollars in some Chicago blues club. Well, that's how my my romantic imagination still... puts these things together but there's this strange code of silence that you are expected to as an artist to not talk about um, any of the things that happen you're not supposed to say hey someone tried to fine us 1500 pounds sterling for going two minutes over our set very strange very strange because these are of course in any other walk of life and any other um, industry the idea that um, workers should not say, well, let's say if artists are workers, you know, or I may make the analogy, the working class in this situation, for the most part, um, highlighting, uh, you know, employee practices or highlighting how you tend to get ripped off or some of the, um, let's be them, let's call them what they are, unfair work practices that seems to be frowned upon with the industry. And I find that quite strange. Now, of course, I do think there is a greater, broader perspective here. Um, which in as we look back over things at the time we saw Lars Ulrich with Napster getting painted as, you know, Napster, Napster, where's the cash that I've been after? But you know what? Fundamentally, Lars Ulrich was right. I don't think any of the utopians who just wanted free information, free art, free access to all these things really realized that they would put artists essentially out of business on those terms and have to make them Um, As I said before, you've listened to me on the podcast, try and scramble a living by playing video games or many other things or being YouTube presenters, etc., etc. But being an artist who just makes music. um, At the time, it seemed like, you know, somebody who was obviously a multimillionaire like Arzurek was being greedy. But in the fullness of time, I think we now realize that the opposite was true, even if he was a millionaire. But I would contend that since then, over the last 10 or 20 years, the concept of art itself, music as an art form, has been demeaned um, so much that it doesn't really seem to mean anything anymore, that there is no 
um, there's almost no relevance to the conversation for most people because music is not as important as it once was. You saw, I think there's a great Joe Rogan episode with the Black Keys, who I don't really have any interest in, but the drummer of the Black Keys, um, I think he's the drummer, um, he was brilliant in this podcast. And it's really worth going back to listen to him talk again. And he just said, well, you know, many of these modern pop music um, you know, uh, songs, not albums anymore, they're driven by clicks by 7 to 12-year-olds. And it's true because many of the th songs that are hits today are, I think, driven, the algorithm is driven by kids just playing and playing and playing the same songs, which is why you don't really see bands anymore. You don't really see rock music. The, the way the music industry is now, it doesn't reward... Um, a collective of people such as four or five artists. You have to be one person, which is why most pop songs are now um, just, you know, names of people, whether this is, obviously, I'm going to quote a few names here. I'm, I haven't a clue about them all, but whether it's Rihanna or Ariana Grande or whoever else. But I do think it's a cultural, um, it's a cultural thing over the last 10, 20 years that art has been so demeaned and has become so worthless or meaningless in the broader context of society uh, that now the idea of an artist having any rights um, over their um, creative works seems to be almost something that is kind of scoffed at, like, oh, well, this is just how things are in this venue. You should accept it. As I'll go on to say, over the two weeks, if I was to try and find a venue for every piece of equipment that didn't work or every local crew person who didn't understand how to do monitors properly or, as I said, fire alarms that just happened because um, you didn't uh, update your fire alarms or whatever else. All of these things, if every time you showed up and went, well, this is not what's on a rider, here's a fine of 150 or 200 sterling, this wouldn't fly, this wouldn't fly. So not only am I not supposed to talk about these things, which when all doubt will get me in trouble, um, you're just not supposed to uh, mention them all, at all. And I think it's, like I said, maybe I'm waffling here. Obviously, I'm waffling. That's the nature of the podcast. But there is definitely, I think, a, an overall just sort of shrug of the shoulders. Like, yeah, so what? You write songs. Who cares? Um, you know, get to the back of the line when it comes to things like, um, you know, work practices or workers' rights or any of those things. Because art is seen as a kind of meaningless thing in 2022. So there exists this kind of weird code of silence, kind of like the magician revealing the magic trick exists, where artists are not supposed to discuss all the percentages taken from them, whether it's a venue wanting 10, 15, 20, 25, or 30% of a band's merch, or most festivals who want the same thing, um, which, as I stated before in part one, um, and to this part of the diary, our merch is still missing. Um, it is their only real unstreamable lifeline, i.e. a physical corporeal product which the band own, well, you would hope they would own their own merchandise. Um, so, among other things, fuel costs go up. The artist takes 100% of that daily burden. But like I said, I don't really want to turn the diary or this edition of the podcast edition episode into some kind of Father Ted-style airing of grievances, but £750 sterling a minute as a threatened fine for going over your set time well now. So to rub salt in the wound, our next show is a substitute show. A sub can't that's difficult to say, isn't it? A substitute show, a last moment edition. So we've been moved from Birmingham, where we might actually pull some people to Southend. Now, Southend is where Londoners went on holiday in the twenties or the fifties or I guess the seventies, um, even. 
yeah, I guess the 1970s. But those days, these days, it's one of those places where you watch those grim 10 to 15 documentary series on E4 about homeless junkies on the streets of Hull or Scunthorpe or Brighton or something or some English town or life in the red light district of South End. Here's Julie. She's injecting meth. She's injecting meth this morning or a documentary about spice or methadrone use. That is kind of how Southend feels set to the backdrop of um, a f- sort of fun fair, a beachside fun fair, which we are all sitting observing. Um, and needless to say, it's the smallest crowd I think we played to since our very first tour of the UK in 95 with Cy. Um, incredibly dispiriting, if I was to let it really bother me. Um, I kind of chalk it up to being in a dark sitcom for the day. So <clears throat> I think that's the only way to really rationalize it or really deal with it. What do you do with a gig like that? I always feel weirdly embarrassed for a band when I see them all painted up and leathered up and dressed up um, with some dramatic intro music stride out to 20 people. Um, for those 20 people, they've paid, so they deserve the full amount of effort, right? Of course they do. But this is where punk rock has the edge over metal as the show or something of the other or the drama. The theatre that is part of heavy metal leaves it feeling a bit redundant in front of no one. And the punk rock experience doesn't really, um, it doesn't need any of that. So a band can just step off the stage and stand on the floor and play with the people around them. And you can have some of the best punk rock shows ever, but take a metal band where there's an element of theatre and then stand there amongst 15 other people and you go, this doesn't sit right. Metal is left kind of high and dry. And when you wheel out the big guns, um, cliche intended, there's nothing to aim at, so to say. Um, So, do you conserve your voice? Do you give it 75%? Not exactly, but certainly it does change the dynamic when between songs you can hear people talking, um, glasses clinking, people talking directly to you. It makes something of a mockery of the situation where you like it or not. Um, So often, and much to my own annoyance at these situations, rather than just get on with it, another part of my personality, the personality that is doing this podcast, um, for better or for worse, hijacks a situation and I tend to make acerbic comments or talk too much between songs, which I do in Holland a few days later when I'm a bit ill, a little bit sick, but I'll get to that. The crowd (coughs) is fine, but the energy levels are kind of low in the room. So rather than stay quiet, I end up talking too much. And it's not how I want to play things, but there's a strange um, rush to fill the silence when you play in a room with not very many people in it. And so you end up um, just, you know, talking more shit. So what can you do but put Southend behind you as, um, you know, a rather strange chapter in a dark sitcom. In Lyon, a fire alarm. Oh, by the way, I must mention, we go back on the ferry and we return to France um, to little or no fuss. Again, either side of the kind of empty ghost ghost, uh, ferry terminals. No one really knows for sure what they do or they don't ask for. Um, And so you just sort of drift between one and the other. And again, you know, the queue to buy things in the in the um, the carbohydrate shop. That is the breakfast room of all of these ferry terminals. Um, is hundreds strong. There only ever seems to be one of the same person working. But, hey, you can't get the staff. In Lyon, a fire alarm goes off in the middle of the coffin ships. The crowd has to leave. 
We stand outside in the cold, steam coming off us, and then we have to come back in. Who knows? Um, a faulty alarm system? No one seems to know. Like I said, shouldn't a band be able to find the venues they book for faulty equipment or things that don't work? Of course, that's a ridiculous sentence. But then so is, of course, finding musicians for, well, many things. Um, so what then do you do? It can be really hard to try and regain the energy of a show once you have to stop and the lights go up, but you have to do it. Do you start where you left off? Do you pick up in the middle of the song? Do you start the coffin ships again? We don't. We just go to the next song. So in Lyon, I do apologize if you only got to hear half of the coffin ships, but that was kind of just the hand we were dealt. And these two shows in France, um, a place that's been very great to play for the last couple of years, Colmar and Lyon, great shows. Um, and we miss out on thousands of merch sales because yet again, of course, our merch is missing. In Paris, however, we get more merch. Um, these really should be the merch diaries, shouldn't they, really? Some boxes from day one are still missing. Um, you know, UPS driver shrugs his shoulders. Eh, who cares? Paris is an amazing show. Maybe the best of the tour. La Machine is an old theatre beside the Moulin Rouge. Everything clicks into place where you can feel the power of the show all click in together. You know the sound is good. You know the lights are being done properly. And that feeling when the band is hitting their stride... My voice is feeling in top shape. The high notes are all present and correct and the body feels fit and healthy. So Paris is something of a triumph, but it doesn't always go like that and it doesn't last long. You can see I'm finally moving on from day one, moving through the days. The Z7 is a cool venue. Awesome people in Switzerland. Uh, we played there many times. It takes about 1,800 people which is way too big for a band like this, but thankfully feels fine with 600, which is almost what we get. For some reason, um, <clears throat> you know, I knew if you were listening to the tour diary, hoping for sex, drugs and rock and roll. Well, hey, look, I may have to go back to retrospective tour diaries to get those things um, for you to get the juicy details. But for now, I'm going to talk about parking and congestion problems. For some reason... The local business community want the venue gone and are pushing them into closing over a parking issue. They don't want the congestion. Now, if you've ever been to Pratlin, you'll know there's nothing there. It's an industrial park, more or less, equidistant from three borders. No one in the local community over 20 years thought, hey, loads of metalheads come here. Let's open a bar so they can have a beer before or afterwards a gig in. Weird. There's nothing there. Or could this venue bring more money into the local community? Now that's the capitalist entrepreneur in you speaking. You wonder. Instead, they want to close down over parking. Halfway through the gig, I vomit on the drum riser. No one notices, thankfully. In the breakdown of his Rome Burns, I have to go to the side of the stage to vomit in a bin. This ain't good. The gig is great. My insides feel like they are turning and turning over like a washing machine. What would Rollins do? Rollins would tough it out and stop complaining. Come on, get in the van. Get in the van. However, I wake up in the morning feeling nauseous and like I've spent the night in the bowels of a ship with my insides turning over and over. Mannheim. Mannheim, Germany. It reminds me of the grim suburbs of Dublin. Um, before the rebuild, before the Celtic Tiger got its hands on the city and decided to sell it to foreign investment companies. But um, it reminds me of Dublin in 1994 or something like this, 
uh, kind of falling apart. A local mall is full of cheap one euro shops, battered and broken looking working class people milling around, hard lives on display, hard lives. Lines of living on the financial edge of society worn into their faces, or maybe it's just me, and maybe it's just my internal organs are making the decision for me because they are, feel like they're on a roller coaster. It feels like a bit like a depressed middle American town. Um, maybe we're just in the industrial suburbs and there's some beautiful medieval town square. You can take that as a metaphor for touring if you want, but I didn't see it today, but it's clear I am ill. Stand on stage in wet clothes, pull your leather tight, standing outside afterwards, in, out, carrying stuff, breathing in the air conditioning, putting them back on the next day, wet leather, wet clothes. It ain't the healthiest. I mean, I mean it sounds like a ridiculous complaint, which of course it is. Um, shouldn't be taken that seriously. But, you know, um, it's only a short jump from putting on wet clothes every other day, well, every day, to uh, getting some kind of, well, sickness, some kind of illness. It could be food poisoning. Certainly feels like it. Great, great food poisoning. That's what you need when you got to sing. It's all I need. After three years of waiting to tour, I get sick because of a wayward, out-of-date chili in a lasagna. It's possible. And you were here for the juicy details, and here's what you get on my tour diary. So I spend 50 euro on medicine and try and stay quiet all day. There's nothing you can do when you get sick but try and concentrate on something else. Deal with it. But at some stage, you know you have to raise the energy and play a show and give what you have. It's a kind of tactical battle with your own body between your senses, your your um, your intelligence, your um, understanding of the situation physically. Like I said in the last episode, if I can hum, if I wake up in the morning and go hum, I know I'm okay for singing, more or less. So that brings us to the drink, the booze, the alcohol, for example, in this example. The problem is, and I was only discussing it with Marduk a few days later, when the mood is low, what picks it up? Well, I mean, traditionally for rock bands, traditionally for any band, it's drink and drugs. That's what picks up the energy. That's how you conquer the lack of energy is with things that take your energy from you. Of course, there are bands who go out there and do yoga every morning and go running and et cetera, et cetera. But this is, these bands are pretty rare. So, you know, what does alcohol do? It's a depressant. It's, it also dehydrates you. It's a diuretic. Um, Marduk, the Marduk drink is a Bloody Mary. That's the Marduk drink. Wine puts me in the mood, but as you've probably seen me drinking it on stage, it ain't great in the heat and on stage. I mean, you come out a bit like a sort of, um, some sort of desiccated fruit, you know, desiccated. There's a word I didn't think I'd use in the podcast. Um, it ain't great. Of course, water would be better, but the balancing act is you need to take the edge off the worry, the anxiety, if you're that kind of person, the worry about being sick in the voice. So you self-medicate um, along with all the natural medicine that you take, well, or rather the medicine that you bought, um, you end up tipping your natural equilibrium over the edge, which for me, you know, normally in a week is playing sports, training, running. Now, this is not to say a 100-minute gig is not a workout um, of some description on its own, in its own right, but the vocal cords are a muscle, and just like putting your elbow elbow out lifting weights, you can do the same with your voice. But you also have to keep something back, as tomorrow is another day. So when you're feeling less than 100%, you can't, for example, give the 80% you have and push it over the edge. You need to keep some in reserve, and this, of course, is where my crummy old microphone, um, you know, takes on a life of its own, and I 
jealously look at Swallow the Sun's in-ear monitors and realize, wow, this would help me when I'm in this situation. So what do we do? We change the set around a bit and don't open with Where Greater Men Have Fallen and No Grave Is Deep Enough, which are the two hardest and highest songs to sing, especially No Grave Is Deep Enough, um, which is basically I Want To Be Somebody by Wasp, if you um, sort of place the structure and uh, tempo maps, and also the vocal height over each other. Um, it's the hardest song to sing. So we start with something in a lower register, like God's the Godless, and I try and ease into the set. But it really is um, your biggest nightmare to lose, as a singer, to lose your voice completely. It has happened and it happens. Um, and there is nothing you can do about it sometimes. Now, people keep referring to my legendary bloodstock moment where I completely lost my voice. But that was more because of the chemicals in the smoke machine literally just cut my voice off completely. It went from oh to nothing. Um, in two seconds. Now that is a very strange um, occurrence, but normally it deteriorates and deteriorates and you can talk, you can talk like this or sing like this or whatever. Or if you're Daniel from Marduk, you just don't worry about it and you sing like a beast every single night and you just talk like this for the whole tour and you don't worry about anything. But however, some of, you, some of us are warriors. Warriors, warriors, you make up uh, your decision which word but however it really is your biggest nightmare and there's because um, you're making a noise with your body after all but seeing as I just saw an ad for another damn Marvel movie on the way home Doctor Strange it's not really much of a name for a, a you know a character is it Doctor Strange anyway they didn't really put much effort into that you lose your superpower and what are superheroes without their superpower well they certainly ain't super anymore isn't that what a great modern cultural reference that is. Um, so, what can you do? There's a balance to be struck, an equilibrium to be struck between pushing it as far as you can with what you've got that day, with your energy levels, um, not drinking too much, not staying up too late. I mean, touring is a strange sort of balance where you try and find the pitch of your equilibrium, try and find the balance of being able to try and keep the mood up but not push it too far and destroy the mood which of course when you were 25 or 26 or 27 um, your body just bounced back that next morning but you know when you're a bit older it doesn't happen quite so easily so you're going to I hear you wondering about um, I hear you wondering about what are the turnouts like well the turnouts are uh, very positive so far quite a lot of people um, um, one thing is becoming clear though as we talk to the local promoters Solid brands and bigger festivals are doing okay, more or less, but for many shows, no one is buying tickets. Um, our, because our tour was announced in 2019, we had three years almost of it being out there in the ether, people discussing it. First it was Moonsaur, then it was Nagelfar, and then Swallow the Sun. Okay, so there was a bit of turmoil with the lineup, but it was out there in the public sphere for three years. And of course, there were people who bought tickets in the first six months, and it's clear that 10 to 15% of these people in some cities just don't show up. But all the talk of is how shows that in 2019 would have brought 250 people are now bringing 100 people. Everywhere we go, we hear more or less the same story from all of the local promoters. And it's clear. Um, and maybe this is something that will interest a lot more people than me giving out about um, fines or merch or whatever else. But people's habits have changed. People message me every day, Aaron the tour, see you later. And then they don't show up. Um, because if you don't have a ticket, then it means you don't commit. Uh, and flaking, as we say in Ireland, you flake on something. Um, and what does that mean? It's a huge thing. It basically means you decide at the last minute not to go. 
you don't want to go outside. You look outside the window and go, ah, uh, um, it's, you know, it's pouring rain. It's, it looks cold. I'm feeling a bit meh. Um, so you just pour a glass of wine and you sit at home and you decide to watch a box set instead. You choose the non-social option. And it seems that many, many people are doing that. Um, and so quite a lot of people show don't show up who have tickets. An awful lot of people who say they are going to show up just don't show up anymore. Um, and that seems to be a state of mind where 20, 25% of the audience mentally reside now. And of course, there are those people for whom things are never coming back. Um, we can see it, you know, my, my dragon buddies in the booking agency are like, wow, Ross the Boss sold out tonight, 250 people in Barcelona. Great, great news. Um, but you wonder if that show was not Barcelona, if it was um, another German city or a northern European city, would it be the same? I think it really depends on so many cultural aspects. It depends on how much of the uh, the fear propaganda uh, uh, a society, uh, a country has imbibed, how much have they taken in um, and how afraid are they of going back out to being social? It strikes me that the Spanish are perhaps less afraid than the Germans or some other countries. There's many, many other coefficients to this um, which make it really complicated. <clears throat> I think if you have a band who are popular, like say in Ireland, Overkill, tickets do well for Overkill. It, is it possible that rural people, the sort of middle-aged rural guys who like Overkill, um, are less worried about coming out and being social again because they live in small towns who had less of the fear propaganda of the of the pandemic poured into them. Their cities weren't emptied out and they saw them being hollowed out. Um, I think there is something to this debate, something to this argument which suggests that certain countries, certain kinds of music are going to do better than others and that some cities, um, I'm not going to say let's say, it's complicated to say, but maybe of a political persuasion, of a more virtue-signaling persuasion, of cities and countries that have taken in more of the fear propaganda, that um, have really taken on board some of these non-social elements. Maybe the fans of those bands are more used to the online gig screen economy, and therefore these all have knock-on effects to, are you going to show up? to be in a sweaty, stinky room with other people tonight to watch that rock band play to 200 people. I think there's certain elements of society that are more likely now in 2022 to go, I'm not really into that anymore. I'm not going to do that. I don't feel safe. And another element of society who's going to go, fuck it. I've been locked up for two years. Um, let's get out. We need to see our friends. We need to be social. We need to be human. We need to have a drink. We need to support live music. Now, I know which camp I belong in, but of course, there's a gray area in between where the lines are kind of blurred. And I do wonder how the local um, local promoters and how the music industry is going to navigate this because um, certainly talking to all local promoters, as I said, shows that were once a 200-person um, um, guarantee are now selling 40, 50, 60 tickets um, as people are not committing. They're not committing. Now, this is before we even get to the cost of living. Just going to a show... Having a beer or two in Dublin will cost you 50 euro. A shirt, add in a shirt and travel and who knows, maybe even a babysitter and you're easily looking at 100 plus euro for a night out. Try and maybe have a proper night out in a hotel in Dublin if you're coming from up the country. Forget it. Forget it. That is an insane cost. Hotels now in Dublin are between 1 and 200 euro a night and that's just how it is. So, 
um, people are making their choices. They're deciding on one show over another and because every band is trying to get out there and play and tour and trying to make things happen and trying to sell that merch, as I talked about many, many times in the podcast, um, there is just, we are reaching some sort of strange critical mass. And I kind of understand all points of the argument. I do understand that there are people who are still scared of going out there. Um, but I also understand local promoters cannot gauge anything anymore because of low ticket sales. And if that's true, then they can't book bands, they can't pay for flights, and they can't bring things in. So I think the next six, nine, 12 months are going to be a very strange time for the music industry and live music as many of the, um, let's say, many of the decisions of the last two, two and a half years began to be felt and move across society over the coming six, 12 months, just because um, restrictions were lifted. This doesn't mean all the problems have gone. There are going to be other new problems anyway. So where does that leave us? That leaves us at the end of, oh, well, let's call it part two of the tour diary. Um, I felt a little tiny bit drowsy there at the start of the podcast. Apologies for that. I clicked into life somewhere halfway through, certainly not from the vitamin D outside, from a lashing, rainy, grey, miserable Dublin. But however, my friends, Tour Diary Part 2, Agitators Anonymous, episode blah de blah blah I'm Alan Averill, and this was your transmission from Planet Satan, over and out. Normal service, Tuesday and Friday, will be resumed as soon as possible. I thank you all.